Happy New Year, and welcome to Cato Audio for January 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, we give you some of the Cato Institute's best thinking on the financial crisis that has rattled Wall Street and homeowners alike. Lawrence H. White tells us how the Federal Reserve has deviated from its traditional role. Jeffrey Mirren chronicles the disaster that is the bailout. Andrew Samwick shows how poorly conceived government responses have left even prudent banks with a moral hazard problem. And commentator Tucker Carlson offers some analysis on the elections of 2008. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Our nearly year-long financial crisis has given way more recently to recession, or at least we learned of the recession that we've been in for some time. I'm talking now to Alan Reynolds, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and Arnold Kling, a Cato adjunct scholar who has perhaps the dubious distinction of having been both an economist for the Federal Reserve Board of Governors and Freddie Mac. We're talking financial crisis, recession, and uh, the fiscal response that we expect from President-elect Obama. Gentlemen, welcome. Arnold Kling, let's start with you. The financial crisis, is there a quick and dirty explanation for how we got here? There are a lot of competing narratives about how we got here. And the most baseless one, that is simply deregulation, is the one that seems to have uh, the most currency. Yes, I don't agree that deregulation caused it. I don't agree with the narrative that the Community Reinvestment Act caused it, which is the one that the people on the right seem to favor. I think it's pretty complex. I wouldn't even claim to understand it well myself. Um, in fact, I'll tell you that a year ago, in a different context, I was writing something. Fortunately, it never got published in which I said that we seem to have gotten out of the subprime crisis without any of the heavily regulated companies like banks or Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae having any problem at all. So a lot of stuff has been a surprise. I'd say the clearly a key factor was the excess securitization of mortgages and a belief that all the risk had gone away, that home prices would never fall. So that was a key triggering factor. And there's a key question that several economists have raised, which is that relative to the drop in housing wealth, the overall drop in wealth has been a multiple of that. And so the question of what is the transmission mechanism that caused the housing crisis, which was a problem, to spread to the entire financial system, I think that is a question that's going to be asked for many years to come. Was this a change in how people thought of their homes and the equity in their homes? Is that part of the mechanism? Well, clearly, there was a lot of housing speculation going on, some of it deliberate, some of it inadvertent. So you had mortgages with very low down payments, and that means that whatever equity people have in their houses comes from house price appreciation. And when prices are going up, in that environment, everyone can buy a home. And when prices are going down, nobody can buy a home. What is the culpability of Congress, the White House, and Wall Street in all of this? I view it as a combination of just about everybody. There was, I think, a massive loss of the sense that house prices could decline. So you had rating agencies rating securities under the assumption that house prices couldn't decline. You had, unfortunately, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, who had tremendous institutional memory of house price declines, for some reason choosing to forget that, saying, you know, they were sort of 
looking at their own risk management models saying these mortgages are dangerous and they're looking at everybody in the market buying the mortgages and the CEOs decide to go with the market and not with what they should have known better. And then finally, the regulators seem to have been asleep on that issue as well. Nobody seemed to be paying attention to what could happen if house prices could decline. And they were not paying attention to the strange incentives being created by capital requirements, which required banks to hold less than half the capital on a double-A mortgage security that they would have to hold on a properly underwritten mortgage loan. Alan Reynolds? The surprise here was not housing. Housing, of course, started to fall in early 2006. And uh, the drop in housing was subtracting a full percentage point from GDP in 2006 and 2007. Actually, in the second and third quarters of 2008, it was less, only about a half percent of GDP, reason being there's a limit to how low you can go on housing starts. So the direct effect of that was no big surprise. The big surprise was all in the mortgage-backed securities and related instruments and the extent to which so many institutions all around the world, in France and Switzerland and England, had leveraged up to the eyebrows in order to buy what we now know to be very risky instruments based on mortgages and some sort of a, a, a collective uh, mania. And the people who you would expect to know about it and tell us about it, the regulators, the uh, analysts, uh, the CEOs of these companies, were strangely silent. Now, part of the narrative here, primarily coming from the left, was we had these risky securities that through special loopholes created in federal laws eight, nine years ago, left certain aspects of the financial markets unregulated, and this was the source of much of the woe that we're experiencing today. I can't think of any regulations that created this, again, other than the capital regulations, which heavily influenced banks towards securitization. You know, one thing that people talk about is that there could have been, with credit default swaps, a, they could have been traded on an organized exchange. I don't think that would have been the solution. I think that there are peculiar instrument in that there's no natural short seller. There's no natural seller of credit default swaps. A credit default swap says if a certain bond defaults or if a certain company gets into trouble, the seller will pay the buyer, like typically would, would sort of buy back the principal of the bond. So it's a way of betting on the credit quality of a company and so you can see where there would be plenty of natural buyers. If I own a bond on a that's issued by a risky company, I would love to get a credit default swap, but there is no natural seller. And what we had was a few unnatural sellers like AIG thinking that they had protected their risk a lot better than they had, and that turned out not to be the case. Yeah, poor AIG was, I shouldn't say maybe poor because it's, <laughs> but they were in the same position as if you were offering cheap flood insurance uh, just before Hurricane Katrina on the assumption that well, there'll never be a big hurricane in New Orleans, but in fact, uh, that's not a safe assumption. And the view that these instruments were as safe as they were was partly due to the rating agencies, of course, who had no way to estimate the risk in the case of a big house price drop, they just assumed there wouldn't be one nationwide. And in, in some sense, they're right. But it it was value-based. It's it's in such areas that are so big 
such as California and Florida and Nevada, that it's a, a huge, huge mistake. And then, of course, if you held such a security and it was guaranteed by a firm as huge and impressive as AIG, it felt pretty secure. A lot of false sense of security uh, set us astray. There's a certain amount of uncertainty that we ought to simply have to accept in our lives when it comes to our investments, when it comes to uh, decisions that we make. What happened here in terms of the ability of markets to properly evaluate risk and properly account for uncertainty? Well, the phrase mania and panic comes to mind. And ex post, it's always hard to tell whether there was an excessive mania ahead of time or excessive panic afterward. I mean, people can still argue, for example, quite plausibly that stock prices in 1929 were actually pretty reasonable. You know, if you bought stock in 29 and held at the peak and held it, eventually you'd have gotten a decent return. Some people still argue the same thing about these mortgage securities, that when all is said and done, enough of these home buyers are going to pay back the loans that the mortgage securities are actually not going to do so horribly. Maybe that's true, maybe that's not. Clearly, people overestimated how well those securities would do. The level of panic just seems to be enormous. So people don't want to hold, institutions don't want to hold anything that has any sort of risk or time associated with it. And that sort of super rapid deleveraging and the sort of race to deleverage on the part of these institutions is, you know, creates a sense of panic. It drives equity prices down and it probably is going to cause a pretty steep recession. Regulation plays in here too because you have a situation where you're an investment bank, say, holding this dubious paper, the value of which is being marked down. Everybody's scrambling for cash. You're likely to get your credit rating downgraded. Your stock is going to fall. And that alone will trigger a credit rating because your debt equity is now out of line. And so uh, you're in a situation where even if you wanted to hold them, uh, you couldn't. And then there's the mark-to-market rules, which are not per se a bad idea. You need to know what these things are worth. We don't really know. That's the trouble. We don't. There's no active market in it. But that puts additional regulatory pressure. So in a sense, a little regulatory forbearance <laughs> might have been in order, but it hasn't come pass. You mentioned something about the deregulation. When people look at deregulation, I mean, this is the era in which we had Sarbanes-Oxley, which was an increase in regulation. We had, as a result of Sarbox, an increase in funding and authority for the Securities Exchange Commission, which wasn't able to, even able to <laughs> notice the Madoff fraud, the Ponzi scheme. And uh, we had the New York Attorney General Spitzer running rampant on the financial businesses. So it, there's certainly been no deregulation since 1999. And the 1990 law, the Graham-Leach-Biley law, was designed to let the investment banks become commercial banks, which they ended up having the good sense to do, but way too late. As to the government response, how have Fed and uh, the Treasury really handled this? Their response, at least thus far, as we record this in mid-December, the uh, bailouts have not morphed anymore in the last few days. But, but essentially, how have how have they handled this? I guess the phrase that comes to mind is ad hoc. They've handled it on an ad hoc basis, and. It seems that they always come up with an excuse to prop up failing firms rather than to sort of think ahead. And in, I think in particular, they ought to be moving much more quickly to get the true failing firms out of the way. I think that just that always helps in this situation to get the bad banks out of the way so that the good banks know that they're not at risk of getting involved and entangled with bad banks. 
and so that they just have more room to operate. What of this push then by Treasury, by the White House, Dana Perino, the White House spokeswoman, has essentially wagged her finger at banks saying, look, we gave you this money, now you better go out there and lend it. And it, uh, I believe China recently decided that they would not be forcing their banks to lend because they don't want to roll back 30 years of reforms. Alan Reynolds? Well, the assumption there is that the solution to too much debt is more credit. And uh, so that right away, I'm beginning to think that's wrong. We need to deleverage. Um, people aren't buying cars not because they can't get auto loans, but because they're scared and they've had a wealth loss and reasons like that. When you say deleverage, talk about what that de means for deleverage de de means get your debts down, <laughs> get your assets up, so that uh, you've taken a wealth hit and get your you have to rebuild your net worth, and you don't do that by increasing your debt load. And secondly, the premise is wrong. Bank lending, uh, at least since July, is up. It was up uh, from six point nine one trillion in. Uh, July to 7.2-something in October and about the same in November, uh, that's up. It's up fairly substantially. That's unusual in a recession because you expect inventory demand for credit to go down. You expect um, uh, consumer lending to go down. You expect mortgage lending to go down. So the opposite is happening. That is, I think monetary easing is working. It's not through the banks that are being helped because those are troubled banks. The small banks are taking a bigger share. Arnold Kling? No, I agree with what uh, Alan said, that uh, the banks that are doing sort of the most to help the economy are the ones that did not receive the aid. Speaking of a prudent government response, Jeffrey Mirren spoke at the, the monetary conference that Cato held in November and sort of was talking, going through the counterintuitive process of explaining just how the government response had actually created perhaps a moral hazard problem for banks that had acted prudently all the way through the process. Yeah, there, there are a lot of questions about the effects of, of what government did. And, and uh, John Taylor, who's an economist at Stanford, just came out with a, an interesting paper in which one of the things he charts is the sort of response of the financial markets to the various announcements that were made. And what you see is the announcement of Bernanke and Paulson that they were going to ask for this legislation was one of the tr the events that seemed to trigger uh, a real you know, worsening of the financial crisis. So I, I don't think financial markets have had any confidence in these decisions uh, made so far. And you, if you go back to sort of before Bernanke and Paulson started reacting to uh, what they saw as adverse developments in the financial markets, just about everything that they've that they would have reacted to has gotten worse since they made their various announcements, you know, since September and October. We have now uh, two budgets, one run by the Treasury called TARP, and then one one in control of Congress. And if apparently if the executive branch doesn't like what Congress is doing with auto loans or something, they say, well, we'll we'll, we'll spend out of our uh, petty cash fund here. Uh, that's uh, uh, if it's constitutional, it ought not to be, and it's certainly a, a, a scary precedent. They used the TARP money for everything except what they said they were going to use it for. The House was stampeded into approving that because the S and P 500 was had fallen to 1,100. We wish we could get back there again, and uh, uh, the, you know the whole thing. And then the uncertainty that uh, that you would as a, I'm a stockholder, and as a stockholder, I, you know you couldn't sleep on the weekends because you'd go to bed on Friday and you you were owning. Uh, uh, Fannie Mae at $7, and then the government would decide to take 80% of it, and now you're owning it at $0.70 cents on Monday. And the same thing happened with AIG. They just seized property and expropriated property and forced nine banks to take government capital 
in precedence to private capital. So it, it uh, from my point of view, it was a, a scary proposition, not, not helpful at all. Arnold Kling? And just to reinforce what Alan said, that the, the rules of the game have been changing constantly over the past two months as to sort of what you know, what is the boundary between the private sector and the public sector? Uh, where is capital coming from? It seems like the rules now are if you can get your hands on bailout money, you can uh, effectively borrow at almost 0% and then lend at whatever you know, market rate you can. But if you can't get your hands on bailout money, uh, you can't do anything. So. I even just read a story today about some British biotech firm saying that they need to get their hands on bailout money. Well, if you've got the something like the biotech industry saying it needs to rely on on bailout money, then I think the whole capital market has kind of been thrown out of kilter. Okay, we learned recently that uh, the United States has been in recession for almost an entire year, and uh, certainly not unrelated to uh, housing and the financial crisis that we find ourselves in, but the Federal response thus far from President-elect Obama has been one of, uh, I think, large-scale public works, uh, building infrastructure in the United States, and sort of a, an odd pledge in one of his weekly radio addresses to create or save uh, 2.5 uh, million jobs. What do you gentlemen think of that? That's a lowball estimate. It, it, it's called lowering expectations. We're likely to lose uh, 3 million. And so to create or save two and a half leaves us with a higher unemployment rate two and a couple of years from now than we have now. So, uh, uh, you know, that in any kind of a, a normal recovery from a deep recession, you would get many, many more jobs than that with no government intervention whatsoever. So if you're expecting that as a result of spending an extra $700 billion on a stimulus plan, uh, that, by the way, adds up to $280,000 per job, which is not a very good deal for the taxpayer. Arnold Kling? Yeah, I, I agree. That's um, and, I, and I don't think public works it's, – it's not the 1930s where we've got millions of unemployed laborers sitting out there. We have you know, a lot of people who are going to have to find something else to do other than investment banking. Um, and so you know, you're getting a lot of structural shifts in the economy and I don't think uh, everyone's going to be able to drive a bulldozer on, the, uh, on a road project. I think a better stimulus idea that uh, several economists on various ends of the spectrum have suggested has been a cut in payroll taxes because that does a lot of things. First of all, it doesn't get the government involved in picking winners and losers and saying this industry needs to expand and that industry doesn't. Uh, secondly, it's something that gets money into the economy quickly. Uh, you don't have to wait for somebody to figure out how to plan a road project. You just cut the payroll tax. And third, it um, lowers the price of labor. And if what you're trying to do is keep people working, then lowering the price of labor is a good way to do it. Well, on this issue of uh, fiscal stimulus, spending billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions, and or trillions of dollars to uh, get the economy moving, I guess the, the fatal conceit comes back in, in some sense. That is, the government has some better idea than... Uh, all the millions of individuals who uh, live and work every day in the United States about where that money ought to go. Alan Reynolds? Well, you know, Japan tried a, a, a fiscal stimulus almost every year from in the early 1990s. They ended up doubling debt GNP ratios and achieved nothing very measurable as, as a result of it, probably because they were trying to fix a fiscal problem with a monetary uh, solution. 
Um, not everything – look, if the government gives money to somebody or buys something from somebody, that's a stimulus to the person receiving it. But somebody ends up paying because the, the government is borrowing that money and has to pay interest on the debt. So uh, it, you know, some of this uh, sort of thing may be uh, uh, useful in the short run, maybe not. Uh, I actually tend to trust what the Fed uh, has done is is adequate stimulus at this point. Arnold Kling. Well, I guess if there are you know, few atheists in foxholes, there may be few non-Keynesians in a, in a recession. So I'm willing to be, be the Keynesian here and think that uh, the multiplier might be high for stimulus. But you have to think of st fiscal stimulus is a weird thing. If I wrote a check to myself, obviously I'm not stimulating anything. If I write a check to my daughter and say it's coming out of your inheritance, well, maybe that does stimulate something. And so collectively, we're writing checks to people uh, that are going to come out of our inheritance. And in some ways, that's pretty scary, but uh, it may have a short-term stimulus. Well, gentlemen, we'll have to leave it there. Alan Reynolds, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and Arnold Kling, Cato adjunct scholar, uh, also blogs at the Econ Log blog. So if you uh, pop that into Google, it should bring it right up. Gentlemen, thank you. As late as mid-2006, many homeowners thought the housing boom would just keep going up and up. Well, it didn't, and here we are. So what's the appropriate role for a central bank following the deflation of an asset bubble? And how has the Federal Reserve departed from its traditional role as a monetary authority and a lender of last resort? Answering those questions at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference, Cato Institute adjunct scholar Lawrence H. White. White is the F.A. Hayek Professor of Economic History at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. The credit bubble created went especially into real estate because real estate is a very interest-sensitive asset. Its relative price rises with a lowering of interest rates by a simple application of the present value formula. It's a long-lived asset. So the low interest rates went especially into the housing market, and the housing sector exhibited a disproportionate share of the inflation predicted by the Taylor Gap. Today we have an overbuilt housing stock, and assuming that the federal government doesn't listen to Jim Cramer and buy up houses in order to torch them, we're going to have excess housing for a while. There's another alternative, which is to relax our immigration controls. That probably also won't happen. But the process of adjustment is requiring housing prices to fall. They are falling. The adjustment's probably not complete yet. It also requires housing-related financial assets to be written down, and that adjustment is being delayed. No matter how painful the adjustment, delaying it only delays the economy's recovery. So going forward, what I think is the best prospects for reduced asset froth in the economy lies with a monetary policy regime that incorporates asset prices not into the discretion of the central bank, but into an automatic feedback mechanism. The most fundamental such reform would be the replacement of the FOMC and its managed fiat money standard by a market-managed commodity standard. And I'm, I was heartened to see uh, op-ed pieces to that effect by Jerry O'Driscoll in the Wall Street Journal earlier this week and uh, by Walker Todd in the Christian Science Monitor. So I commend those to your attention. Secondly, I want to say a little about the Fed's new post-bubble roles. In my role as a economic historian of uh, antiquarian monetary institutions. Let me take you back to the distant past one year ago. Before 2008, 
the Fed played the traditional central banking role of conducting monetary policy, and on very rare occasions, like 9-12, acting as a lender of last resort, which simply means preventing the money supply from collapsing. It did that by purchasing treasury bills. So changes in the monetary base were almost exactly matched by changes in the Fed's holding of treasury bills. There were a few loans to banks, but they were trivial on the overall balance sheet. Today, things have changed dramatically. I refer you to the uh, Fed balance sheet that is in my handout. In addition to conducting monetary policy, the Fed is now taking on a new role of selectively channeling credit in favored directions. It makes loans to an array of financial institutions that are not commercial banks, that do not issue money, that are not intimately involved in the payment system. The total of new Fed credits over the past year, which you might call the Federal Reserve's self-financed bailout program, currently stands at $1.7 trillion more than double the size of the Treasury's $700 billion, and yet it's gone widely unnoticed in the press. It's evident on the Fed's balance sheet. Like Donald Cohn, I carry my uh, H-41 with me, and I've had to update my paper each week as the new one has come out. The list of items now appearing on the balance sheet, but completely absent from it a year ago, begins with term auction credit, currently $415 billion, which represents long-term loans to banks, Previously, banks that wanted to borrow money on those terms had to go to the private market or to depositors. Next on the list, within the other loans category on the consolidated balance sheet, but broken out in the uh, sources of reserves item, is primary dealer and other broker-dealer credit, currently $57 billion, which is loans to securities dealers. Previously, the Fed did not lend to securities dealers. Third is the asset-backed commercial paper money market mutual fund liquidity facility. The Fed really needs to hire somebody to come up with better acronyms, which is lending $77 billion to banks or bank holding companies for the purpose of purchasing assets from money market mutual funds. Previously, money market funds that needed to sell commercial paper were expected to sell it in the money market. Other credit extensions, which seems to be a catch-all, amount to $84 billion. Fifth, the Commercial Paper Funding Facility, LLC, is a special purpose vehicle for commercial paper, which the Fed has directly purchased from its issuers. So not from banks, but directly from the firms that are borrowing money. It's currently at $243 billion. The Fed used to avoid intervening directly in financial asset markets to support asset prices. The Fed has very definitely taken on what Don Cohn called the fiscal risk. It lost $2 billion on, uh, so far on the Bear Stearns investments. So skipping to the conclusion, the Fed's new activities have amounted to uh, a bailout in the sense that they seem to be protecting, attempting to protect banks and non-banks from the consequences of their portfolio decisions. Attempting that kind of bailout is a worrisome role for the Fed to take on, especially at its own initiative, especially without any public debate or oversight. The fact that it's self-financed by what you can loosely call printing new money doesn't mean that it's a free lunch. It relies on the Fed's power to levy an implicit tax on holders of dollars. It puts us all at risk for depreciation of the dollar. I think it's regrettable that these efforts have not been debated, that they seem to be enjoying the complete freedom from oversight by Congress that Secretary Paulson sought for the Treasury's bailout. No matter how many times the threat of a financial meltdown is repeated, it should not be the excuse for a constitutional meltdown. It's time for a public debate on the wisdom of the Fed's remarkable departure from its traditional roles. 
Now, would calling the Fed to account be a violation of the Fed's traditional independence? I'm afraid that Chairman Bernanke forfeited that independence months ago. From either the perspective of short-run stability or long-run behavior of financial markets, the bailout is a disaster. So says Jeffrey Mirren, a senior lecturer in economics at Harvard University. He took a hard look at the economics of the bailout at a Cato Institute New York City seminar in November. And he made a powerful case in favor of the Fed and Treasury doing, well, nothing in response to the financial crisis. Was the bailout a good idea? I'd suggest we should judge the bailout by three criteria. It's distributional impacts, it's long-run impacts on the economy, and whether it was a good idea from the perspective of stemming the crisis or ameliorating the crisis. So on the first two of those three, it's really easy. From a distributional perspective, the bailout is, of course, completely nuts. Okay, that's part of why this is one issue on which populists like Lou Dobbs agree with free market libertarians like me. The bailout was transferring money from the general taxpayer, from my kids and your grandkids and everything like that, to people who were relatively well off, people who had taken risky bets. Okay? That's an insane kind of redistribution for the government to undertake. Okay? From a long run perspective, okay, the bailout is also incredibly bad. Okay? Why? First of all, by having the government come in and say, oh my gosh, there's a problem, we're going to fix it, distracts attention, presumably deliberately so, from the fact that the government created the problem in the first place. It gets people to forget that the same people who are claiming to be the good guys were in fact the bad guys just 10 minutes ago. Okay? And by having the government come in and say, we can bail people out and fix this, it means that the people who took risks don't have to pay the price of the risk they take, so it exacerbates what economists call a moral hazard. That's one economics term that's now become part of the popular jargon. Okay? Now everybody knows what moral hazard is. We don't have to teach it in principles anymore. Okay? The other reason that the bailout is a terrible thing from a long-run perspective is it means the government is now a partial owner, maybe someday a very important owner, of the financial services sector. So that means decisions about allocating capital in financial markets will be enormously influenced by politics and not by economics. That will mean any number of unbelievably insane things, such as governments deciding that certain types of risky borrowers should get loans independent of ability to pay, that certain industries like green industries should get tons and tons of cheap credit because the government decided to promote various uh, environmental goals. It'll mean that certain districts that happen to be those of powerful congressmen will get lots of loans relative to other districts. So all the implications long run for having the government having taken the equity stake okay, are completely counterproductive and undesirable. So from that perspective as well, it makes no sense. So to endorse the bailout, you have to believe that the short-run benefits okay, were going to be better than all of those bad distribution and long-run consequences. Well, that almost already sounds implausible on its face. Okay? How could any short-run benefit be worth a huge long-run cost? But let's look at the details. So was the bailout likely to fix the crisis, and what other effects was it going to have? First of all, why would the bailout make any sense? The story is that when banks fail, 
Those failures impact other banks, which causes solvent, but now perhaps illiquid banks to also fail. And that dries up lending. That impacts the real side of the economy. And so the whole thing grinds to a halt. And the episode my people point to is the Great Depression, where allegedly these credit effects of banks failing played a significant independent role, additional role, in causing the Great Contraction. Okay? I think that's possible. Okay? I don't disagree with the economists who have models of this kind of effect and are concerned about that kind of effect. But okay, first, there's actually not that much evidence for these effects. There is basically one paper that tries to make a really strong case for these spillover, negative spillover effects from bank failures. That paper was written by Ben Bernanke, okay, published in 1983. It's a very interesting paper, okay? but it's also hopelessly unconvincing because all it shows is a contemporaneous relationship between bank failures and output. The causation could just as easily run from output declining to more bank failures. And as I've shown, output was declining, bad things were happening in the US economy, which could themselves have caused the bank failures rather than the failures having caused the declines in output. And Bernanke says that very clearly in the paper, but he then dismisses it. Okay? Why else is the, the bailout a bad idea? Well, as I've suggested, some of these failures were necessary. Lots of people okay, overinvested. Lots of people took out risks. There were some imprudent things done, so things needed to contract. Okay? A downturn had already started, so we clearly weren't going to prevent it. And to some degree, that downturn was a desirable thing. Okay? Worse, the bailout might well have exacerbated the situation in September and October. Why? The bailout scared people. When the Treasury Secretary gets up and says, give me unlimited power and do it now and stop asking questions, that's going to make a lot of people think, geez, it must be really awful out there. Okay? When the Treasury Secretary does announces a bailout, that introduces delay. Everybody's waiting okay, for the point at which the nature of the bailout became clear. But it's going to be months, years before the nature of the bailout became clear. Who's eligible for it? How much is it? What kinds of assets will they buy? When will they take the money back out that they've put back in? All those things generate delay, generate uncertainty, and they do nothing to increase the transparency of the financial system to make it clear what was on balance sheets of different institutions, which was the one thing the markets, in my view, clearly wanted in order to be able to engage in lending. Okay? So in my view, the bailout, even on the short-term dimension, was a Hail Mary. It had some teeny chance of helping, but many, many ways it could have made things worse or gone wrong. Okay? So basically on every criteria, distributional, long run, and short run, the bailout was really bad policy. Thanks to multiple bailouts, moral hazard is now a part of the general vernacular. But the government's convoluted response to the financial crisis may leave even the most prudent banks thinking twice before being so prudent in the future. Andrew Samwick, a professor of economics at Dartmouth College, made that argument at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference in November. If the government were to get involved in the financial status of any individual corporation, it might choose to do so while the firm is in bankruptcy, not before. And even then, it shouldn't get to the back of the line of those seeking funds out of that company. It should get to the front of the line. So it should come in only after the existing stakeholders have given up as much as they can give up. And when it does so, it should provide the marginal funds and get the first dollars out of the company. 
If you have a project that is going to return money in excess of what was put in, then you can give back the folks who contributed the financing first and still have some left over for the others. All right, if you get involved too soon, you are, in what the current president likes to say, you are negotiating with yourself. You are racking your brains to try to figure out what package of assistance you could offer to these firms that are in trouble, and you have to continually revise that until you give them something that they will accept. I think that's kind of ridiculous. I think the stakeholders of that firm should have to absorb the losses that, after all, were the consequence of projects where they would have borne the upside. They should have to continue to negotiate amongst themselves. And then when they have negotiated enough and reduced their claims enough, then the government can come in and, and provide assistance if we really are in a situation where private credit is, for reasons of a credit crunch, too difficult to find. Okay. The reply to that will always be, but what about the foregone investment? What about the foregone economic activity that may result? And in order for that to be weighing very heavily on your mind, you have to believe that the firm in question, the one that's in trouble, is the only firm that could have undertaken that project. If there's some other firm that could have undertaken that project, then there was no particular reason to pay off the creditors of this existing firm just for the sake of it doing a project that somebody else could do. Clearly, in the case of financial institutions, it doesn't matter which bank you get the money from. You're better off getting it from a healthy bank as opposed to an unhealthy bank. Ignoring for a moment what the government would have to pay out in, say, FDIC claims, you're better off giving your dollar to a place that doesn't have to use it to pay off the existing creditors. It is also this conjecture that there would be foregone economic activity that would not be able to be replaced elsewhere in the economy. That's likely false in the case of non-financial corporations, but it's going to take longer to resolve, and I think the extent of that damage is ultimately something of an empirical question. Okay, the last thing I want to say, and this is by way of just summary, is that you don't hear about it too much in the uh, financial press or any other press for that matter, but not everyone went hog wild during what I refer to as the debt lace consumption rampage. There were people who could have taken on more debt that was prudent and bought a bigger house than they could afford. There are people out there, I could raise my hand as one of these people, who's been trying to save quite a lot over the past several years. And what has happened to me? I have seen, as the government has tried to intervene on behalf of other people, not so prudent or not so interested in saving, that the rate of return I can get simply by putting the money in the bank is substantially lower. Imagine if you were maybe the last prudent bank left in America. Over the last several years, you have been seeing other originators of mortgages chewing down your market share. So there's reckless lenders and there's prudent lenders, and the reckless lenders were being very aggressive. The prudent lenders could have copied, but let's say they didn't. So the first thing they did was they lost market share. As the asset value started to fall, what happened? They were immiserized by the falling rate environment. Banks can make money in high interest rate and low interest rate environments, but not if the low interest rate environment puts the deposit rate so close to zero that the spread is squeezed. And then the second thing they've had to see, this is insult to injury, is that all of the discussion in Washington today is about what else we could do to prop up the value of those assets. And so the prudent banker is out there wondering, 
I thought that by being contrarian, I would actually have the opportunity to pick this stuff up at a cheap price later on. But instead, what I discover is that you are taxing me on my corporate profits to create a pool of money to go out there to prop up the assets of the people who are recklessly competing against me. It is about time that if the government was going to get involved, it did so on behalf of the prudent and not the profligate. The elections of 2008 represented a bloodbath for Republicans, as Democrats made gains in the House, the Senate, and not to mention the White House. Writer and commentator Tucker Carlson at the Cato Club 200 retreat in November walked those assembled through the wreckage of the Republican coalition, and he told them what the election means for the message of liberty in the years to come. It is a complete honor to be here. I don't have the experience very often, in fact, never, of being in a room full of people I agree with. It's a little bit disconcerting. I work at MSNBC, so every morning when I put on a tie, I gird myself against despising everyone I come into contact with. And so this is, <laughs> this is really amazing. I got here a little bit early, and whenever I get to a speech early, that means, you know, of course, I order room service and sit and watch the Discovery Channel. But since I was here, and this is Cato, I thought, you know, I, I ought to go downstairs. And I knew Ed was speaking, and... Ed Crane, I think, is truly one of the coolest people in the United States, and so I knew I was going to catch what he had to say. So I come downstairs a little bit early, and I walk into this presentation about energy policy, and I'm thinking, well, I found the wrong room because I'm not a policy guy. And, and I sit down and I listen to it, Jerry Taylor's talk, and about four minutes into it, my jaw just drops. He said about five things that I had not thought of, that no one I know has thought of, and that were demonstrably true. And I was literally looking around to take notes. I mean, the idea that oil money doesn't necessarily cause terrorism, I, you know, I hate to reveal myself as such a shallow person four minutes into my speech, but that had never occurred to me. And that to me is just, that's sort of a metaphor for Cato. It's the place you go to hear things you haven't heard that challenge you and that more often than not are right. Not necessarily things that are going to make you super popular in my neighborhood in Washington, um, but... It's just wonderful. I, I, this is not pandering at all. I mean, I, if this was the Association of Doorknob Manufacturers, I'd probably tell you how much I love hardware. But this actually is heartfelt. I really mean that. And uh, Jerry Taylor, boy, he's, I don't know where he is. I don't think I've ever met. You're a great speaker. I'm not just saying that. You are really, really good. You blew my mind. Woo! If I still had a show, I'd make you co-host. It'd probably get canceled anyway. But um, anyway, thank you so much for having me. I just want to speak briefly and then take your hostile questions. By the way, if you, since this is a room full of lots of libertarians, I know a lot of you will have trouble not shouting out in disagreement with some of the things I'm going to say, so don't hold back. <laughs> Throw a dinner roll, whatever. I work in cable news. You're not going to hurt my feelings by uh, heckling. Uh, so what just happened is um, what I want to talk about and what it means. I don't, strictly speaking, know the answer, but here are a few impressions. So Obama won mostly because Bush was super unpopular. Let's be honest. I mean, that's kind of the bottom line. Bush is less popular than chlamydia. Anybody who's not from his party. That's actually literally true, by the way. I've checked the numbers. Uh, anybody who's running from the other party is likely to win. I think Dennis Kucinich, whom I personally wrote, rooted for, would have done fairly well on the Democratic side. It was just one of those years at every level. I covered the campaign for a year and a half, and I can tell you what you already know. And Ed Crane and I were just commiserating about this. This is just one of those years. It, just, it, didn't, it didn't have to do with the individual. 
You know, it had to do with party identification, up and down the ticket. I mean, incumbent famous senators don't lose unless they commit a felony, and as we've just learned, sometimes even then. So Elizabeth Dole loses. I mean, not that I was an Elizabeth Dole supporter, hardly, but come on. That just tells you this was primarily a partisan election, but it's too easy, I think, to stop there. I think that there have been, and I say this with real sadness, there have been changes in the way the average person views his relationship to the federal government. And I think it's important if you're going to try and sort of think our way out of where we are to acknowledge that. And, you know, people are afraid. It goes without saying that every crisis is used by those in power to grab more power. We saw it after 9-11. We're seeing it now. That's inevitable. It's the nature. It's just the, it's the nature of organizations and not just government. And that's a sad thing. But it, in a democracy, government does that to some extent with the acquiescence of the population. And they're acquiescing, frankly. They are. And you look at, look at the polling. Look inside the polling. Break it out, as my brother the pollster is always telling me. You know, look at the questions that don't make it into USA Today, and you find that people are, for this moment anyway, increasingly, and again, real sadness as I say this, willing to trade freedom for security. And, you know, that's a shame, and, it, and it's, it's, it's more than a shame, actually. It's frightening. And it's um, one of the reasons that we need places like Cato. We need people to make a, a thematic case for liberty, not just at the granular policy level, you know, this works better than that works, but a defense of pretty basic ideas about man's relationship to the state. You can win that argument with rhetoric. And one of the things we've sort of forgotten, or many, certainly many Republicans have forgotten over the past eight years, is that rhetoric matters. The ability to talk matters. And not just in you know, fluent English, that's kind of the baseline, <laughs> It is, actually. I mean, of the many reasons Obama won, one is that, you know, he, he can talk. And after eight years of, uh, you know, Bush, watching Bush give a speech, someone once said it's really like watching a drunk man cross an icy street. You know, you, you want him to get to the other side, but you fear he won't. It's anxious-making. You feel like he's going to slip on a preposition and just die, you know. And Obama is eloquent, among other things. And watching an Obama speech really is like, you know, watching an F-16 take off. You know, there are loops and loops. You know, it's, it's like a stunt plane. It's like clauses and independent clauses. And you think, there's no way he can land that sentence grammatically. And every time he does. It's like, you know, sitting at Miramar with your... It's impressive. Um, but it's more than impressive. It's central to what a president does. A president, after all, doesn't have so many powers. He can veto. He can send troops to war. He controls all these agencies. But in the end... He has the power to convince. And the, the beauty of, of, of our country, and, and I think one of the, the good sides of the Internet, the downside is a lot of people write me angry letters, but the upside is that the average person actually has the ability in a way he never had to make a case. And if it's compelling and eloquent enough, have it heard and have it convince people. So amen. So that's the upside of the Obama victory. The other upside is I think the media is in for a, a fairly dramatic shakeup fairly soon simply because there's no defending its behavior. And it's, it's, it's almost like, and I say this as someone who no longer drinks, and partly because I woke up one morning after having done so many appalling things that I thought, I'm never doing that again. And that's sort of, the, the media is in for the hangover of all time, I think now, having squandered really the last, amen, amen. I mean, look, no matter who you voted for, and I will say, I grew up in a media family, I've always defended the press against claims of bias. You know, they're so biased, no, the problem is they're dumb. They're really dumb, okay, that's the, pro- that's the root problem. But this year, it's true, we're dumb. Uh, I'll, I'll concede that. This year, the problem was dumbness coupled with unbridled enthusiasm, right? So the press just, you know, for the first time in my lifetime, probably the first time in the past hundred years, just dropped any pretense of objectivity at all and just said, you know, we're, we're just completely in love. And not just love, that's actually too, that's not strong enough. Love is what you feel for the Red Sox. You know what I mean? It's kind of a platonic love. 
I'm not talking. Or the Yankees. That's a spirit. Or whatever. But that's a kind of dry, that's love from a remove, right? I'm not talking about it. The, the love that the press felt for Barack Obama was a much moister kind of love. You know what I mean? A, a passionate, an effervescent love. The kind of love you have to be a 14-year-old boy to understand. You know what I mean? The kind of red in the face, I think about you all the time, too embarrassed to stand up, like a throbbing love. I know, it's, rep- it's repulsive. How do you think I feel? I work there. Uh, the kind of love that literally led network reporters to weep openly on television upon the election of Jesus two weeks ago. It was unbelievable. And where I work, I mean, typically, if you were to cry when someone was elected, uh, tears of joy, you would be immediately relieved of your duties and, you know what I mean, sent to the copy desk. They were congratulated. That was real, man. That was, that was good television when you cried. <laughs> so so we're not sure, I'm not sure exactly what the effects of this are going to be. I think the obvious, uh, I mean, there are some definitely long-term pernicious effects of this. But in the short term, I think it further disempowers the old media. And that's good and bad, but I think it could be good. They are seen as not credible, just another portion of a cheering section for a specific candidate as partisan. I'm not sure it's good for democracy, but it's, it, it hastens their demise, and that's something that I pray for all the time, even though they pay my kids tuition. So that's a good thing. Let me tell you the, the two ways that the Obama administration is going to run into trouble. And this is going to be a while. By the way, it's going to be a while. All right, so people are in where I live in Washington, you know, there's this mad scramble to set up by Republicans to set up websites designed to figure out what to do next. And I don't begrudge that. I think it's great. I, you know, any kind of dialogue about ideas is a good thing, and I, I support it on principle. But the truth is you can't do anything until he screws up. That's the nature of politics. Right? There's no opening until Obama blows it. There just isn't politically. Rhetorically, intellectually, there are, but you're not going to actually get elected to anything until he personally discredits the platform on which he was elected. That's just always and everywhere the nature of politics. So it's going to be a while. But here are a couple of ways he could get in trouble. One, it's a complete disaster that he's elected with a Democratic Congress. It always is. People want divided government instinctively. I don't think the average person spends three minutes a year thinking about this consciously. But people, and the polling shows this, I I believe, kind of want power to be vested in competing bodies. They do. So you're much more likely to become unpopular by overstepping if your party controls everything. And frankly, your biggest problem is not the other guy. It's your own guys. I mean, Bush is at 26% this morning in, in the approval ratings. Okay, I think if Bush had had a Democratic Congress for his first six years, he'd probably be at 46%. Bush was destroyed by his own people because he couldn't say no to them. Right? He couldn't say no. He didn't veto a single spending bill. He couldn't because they were his fellow Republicans. Clinton, by contrast, was saved by the fact that he had a Republican Congress. Of course. I mean, he would have been out. I don't know if you remember the whole Monica story. I don't, it was a big deal where I live. I don't know if it made the papers here. But it was, it, was, it was a pretty all-consuming saga in Washington. And the conventional view, I remembered very well, was, in fact, I was at a funeral when it broke. And the proceedings, the solemn proceedings were disrupted immediately by people going pew to pew, passing it on. Um, but the view was, I know, that's Washington, uh, he'll be out by Friday. And the only reason he wasn't, because Democrats were mad. This guy's embarrassing, this is untenable, it's hurting our brand, we've got to get rid of this character. The only reason he stayed was they made the obvious choice, pivoted and blamed the thing on Republicans. Maybe fairly, maybe not. But as a political matter, that's very effective. When your people are controlling everything, who do you blame? Nobody. And you end up getting hurt. And as I said, you can't say no. Republicans are saying, well, why Rahm Emanuel? You know, literally has never uttered a sentence about the F word in it at least three times. Ever. <laughs> if you know him, you know I'm not exaggerating in any way, and I actually like him for that. But if Obama's going to change the tone and you know, bring comedy to Washington, why in the committee, why 
in the world and comedy. Actually, Emmanuel's pretty funny. Why would he put this savage, nasty, profane partisan in this key position as White House Chief of Staff? This is not a defense of Obama, hardly, trust me, coming from me. But I think it's the truth. He didn't put him in there to pound on Republicans. Republicans, I mean, there aren't any. And I'm serious. And those who are sort of wandering around in a daze, back to my hungover metaphor, you know, just like searching for a Bloody Mary to calm the shakes. They're not worried about Republicans. They're worried about Democrats. They're worried about Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid. He's in there to play the heavy against Obama's own people, right? So that tells you Obama's not, not stupid. I guess we sort of knew that. But he understands that's his central challenge. And despite Rom. I think it's going to be a problem. I think they could overreach. I think they could go to the Fairness Doctrine. I was at dinner last night with some big Democrats, and they were saying, well, the Fairness Doctrine. I said, well, that's, I mean, obviously that, that's one fairly dramatic step toward, you know, like Hugo Chavez land. I mean, that's, that's authoritarian. You can't control the media. They're already sniffing your throne anyway. Why would you want to try? And these people said, no, no, we're absolutely going to do that. We're going to, you know, we're, the Fairness Doctrine is absolutely going to be reinstated. If that's true... The Obama moment will be a short moment because that is, trem- that, that is a lack of perspective. That is someone who doesn't know himself and doesn't read the country correctly and the election results correctly. Overstating your own mandate is always a recipe for self-destruction. So that's A. B, and this is a very obvious point, but I don't think it can be stated uh, vigorously enough, he's oversold. Obama's oversold as a political figure. He just is. I mean, I think he's, I have covered him extensively and I've talked to him and I'm, you know, I'm impressed by him. I think he's smart. I think beating Hillary Clinton is a remarkable achievement. It, it is, in political terms. I mean, that is, I, I'm, not, I'm searching for a metaphor strong enough to capture what that means, but that was considered completely impossible. That really, it's like one of those ultimate fighting, you know, nights where, like, you know, the drunk contractor gets in the ring with the, you know, the professional kickboxer and somehow wins. Because Hillary Clinton, no, I'm serious. Hillary Clinton is the toughest person in the whole world. Literally. She literally is. No one has taken more abuse, fair or unfair. No one has bullfed forward, you know, without acknowledging it in the way that she has. I mean, you want to know how tough Hillary Clinton is? It's a true story. Sorry to digress, but this is actually, this has to do with a producer I have called Brad. And Brad is what they call in New England a chowderhead. I don't know if you have those here. Brad is a, Brad is like a size 19 neck. He's probably got an IQ in the mid-80s. Brad's only interest is hockey. That's it. Hurting other men on ice skates. That's Brad. That's all Brad cares about. Knows nothing about politics, current events, nothing. Just hockey. Missing some teeth. 1994, Brad is a senior at Syracuse University in upstate New York. And one afternoon in the spring, he's walking to the gym to play hockey or inject steroids or do whatever Brad does in the gym. (laughs) Walking along, minding his own business. And he looks over and parked about 10 feet away is a black Chevrolet Suburban. And the passenger side window is down, and seated in the passenger seat, to Brad's complete surprise, is the First Lady of the United States, Hillary Clinton. And she's speaking on a cell phone. She's come, unbeknownst to Brad, to address the student body of Syracuse. And Brad just, Brad can't believe it. Hillary Clinton. And coursing through his tiny reptilian brain is a single thought. Hillary Clinton, I don't like her. So he gives her the finger. I'm not, I'm not defending that. I'm not, I'm not. But that's, that's who Brad is, and that's what Brad did. What do you think Hillary did? She gave it right back to him! Yes, she did. She dropped her cell phone, she flipped Brad the bird, and then she smiled. Now, if you hear admiration bordering on love in my voice, it's totally authentic, I can promise you, because I do admire that level of toughness. He beat her, okay? 
That's who he is. He's not the guy who beat the legacy of George W. Bush. My kids could do My Springer Spaniel could do that. That's, that's easy. He's not the guy who beat, you know, Alan Keyes for his Senate seat. He's the guy who beat the entire establishment and leadership of the Democratic Party of the United States. On my street in Lowell Street in Washington, D.C., I would say there were probably, no exaggeration, seven people on my street who thought they were going to be ambassador to Belgium under the Hillary Clinton administration, okay? So the... The control the Clintons had over the party cannot be overstated. I mean, they were the Democratic Party, and this is the guy who bumped them off. So he is a capable human being. That said, he cannot make the lame walk in the blind seat. He can't. He's not going to redeem your sins. Now, this is probably not news to anybody in this room, I imagine. Maybe it is. I'm sorry to bring this sad news. This will be a grave and unwelcome surprise to many of his supporters. I can tell you that. I know some of them intimately. I'm related to some of them, unfortunately. And... No, I truly am. I don't know if I've told you the story, but I actually have a cousin who works for Obama, my favorite first cousin, my dear demented cousin, and uh, we're from California. My, my cousin's story actually sort of, you want to know who the core of the Obama movement is. And it's not, I'm sure many of you voted for Obama or maybe did, I don't know. You know, what, you know a lot of people who did. I'm not talking about you, people with jobs and families and <laughs> things like that. I mean my cousin. This is who, okay, so my cousin was a normal guy, pretty normal guy, sort of normal guy. A couple years ago, this year, living the perfect life. He lived in Malibu. He was a second-year student at Pepperdine Law School, got good grades. Lived right on the beach with his dog, his girlfriend, great-looking girlfriend. (laughs) Everything. Went surfing every day. And everything was kind of going great for my cousin until one night, Sunday night, late, midnight, he's up watching C-SPAN, mistake number one, obviously, and Barack Obama comes on. And he's giving one of his speeches, you know, hope, whatever. And an Obama speech is really, it's really like a dog whistle. You know, most people can't hear it, but those who can, you know, really can. And, and my cousin was one of those. And the effect was biblical. He dropped his nets and followed Barack Obama. Literally, the next day, he dropped out of law school, left his dog, his hot girlfriend, surfboard, everything, and moved from Southern California to Des Moines, Iowa, to live outdoors in a tent in a former Girl Scout encampment to devote his life to Barack Obama. And he was joined in this by thousands of people just like him from Eugene and Santa Cruz and other dope-smoking communities up down the left coast (laughs) who'd seen the same C-SPAN speech and had the same transformative reaction. Now, these are people who are, at least in the case of my cousin, who I think is going to actually wind up working in the White House. He actually did quite well in that environment. Now that the Moonies are defunct, you know, (laughs) whatever, you you find your natural level. But um, he is is a totally good guy. I like him, as I said, and he's my blood relative. What makes him different from me, and I suspect from many of you, is, and certainly from most Americans, is that my cousin wants change. That's right. He wants real change. And that does make him, if not unique, part of a fairly small minority in this country. Because actually, the one thing Americans don't want, in fact, adamantly don't want, and if you're a real libertarian, you know what I mean. They don't want change. They don't want change at all. Now, they say they want change. People say a lot of things. And they lie, or they don't know themselves. When they say they want change, what they really mean is they want incremental improvement. They want things to get a little better. You know, they want, I don't know, the market to settle down, or gas prices to get to 150, or shorter lines of the DMV, or a FEMA that shows up within a month of a hurricane, or whatever. They want want things to get a little better, because they understand that that's the nature of life. That's the nature of all improvements. They are incremental. Everything worth having takes a long time to get, to build. And if you're in business, you know that's true of your business. And you know if you're a parent, that's the nature of child rearing. Or if you're in a marriage, that's what a marriage is. 
It's something that gets better slowly over time. And yet, change comes instantaneously, and it's by nature destructive. It's the Sandcastle Principle. It takes a long time to build something worth having in a second to knock it down. And most Americans get this intuitively. Not a super deep, reflective country, but one with pretty sensible instincts, and they get that, you know, viscerally. My cousin doesn't get that at all. My cousin wants change, real change. You know, 1789, Storm the Bastille change, French Revolution change, you know, year zero, Pol Pot, Camarouge change. My cousin wants to burn it down and replace it with something new. Like, now. Now. He wants to tear it out by the roots because he doesn't have roots. Because he's not rooted or vested in this society. He's not a bad guy. He's not going to hurt you or mug you while you're walking to, to Starbucks. But he wants change. Now, Obama is way too smart for that. He understands there's zero appetite for real change in this country. never has been. It's a bourgeois country. It's a country rooted in the ethics and mores of business, right? So it's a country that thinks longer term than, than countries that aren't. And, and there's no way he's going to propose that. And, and I suspect that deep down Obama is not a radical anyway, despite the Bush. Had, and I, I eat broken glass where I voted for him. I'm not in any way endorsing him. I'm merely saying that some of the, the crude caricatures in the, in the last weeks of the campaign were just that, crude caricatures. I don't think he's Billy Ayers. I don't. Got crappy taste in friends, but I don't think he's a revolutionary. So Obama, when he says, I'm going to bring you change, he couples that with what, in the context of the Democratic Party, are fairly small-bore policy proposals. You know, Change, but not really. My cousin doesn't get that distinction. Anything subtle at all is lost on my cousin and his buddies, all of whom right now are in Starbucks plotting revolution. You know, your barista behind the counter, the guy with the beret with all the little pins on it, rides the bike to work for ecological reasons... He wants change. And those are exactly the people, that is precisely the constituency, and it's not small, by the way, it's not small at all, that is going to be gravely disappointed by the limitations of politics. They don't understand them. They don't understand that the system was set up to be in conflict with itself, that the various branches are supposed to be grinding against one another like an unoiled engine. That's, that's, that's the system that our founders devised for a reason. They don't get that. They don't know who the founders were. They know they want things to be totally different tomorrow. And I think managing their expectations and managing the disillusionment and potentially the anger that they feel when our sins aren't redeemed at the end of the first quarter of next year is going to be the chief uh, obstacle to success for the Obama administration. I can bore you for hours with the details of this because, trust me, they're thinking about this a lot, but I won't. Maybe we can talk about the question, but let me just say... You know, this is a moment where attacking Barack Obama is shouting into the wind. You will be not heard. But this moment is going to be shorter than people imagine it will be. And there will be a time when people will listen to sense again and care about liberty once again. And I pray it won't be, you know, at the point of no return too late. So thanks very much for listening to me. I'll take your questions. At the end of January, Cato is releasing an important new book, Climate of Extremes, Global Warming Science They Don't Want You to Know. Co-authored by Cato's Patrick Michaels, the book explains the other side of the global warming story. Check out Cato's website for all of the details. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.